so welcome everybody. Uh, we're really happy to have um, so many people here, um, especially our special guests, Bill Crystal and Sarah Longwell. Um, Big Tent USA is a national advocacy organization that promotes moderate political platforms focusing on rights of all Americans, civic engagement, and good governance at both the state and federal level. Founded by a group of women in Greenwich, Connecticut in 2019, we recognize that women's involvement is an essential factor in balancing the face of government, standing up for democracy, and creating a driving force for positive change in America. Big Tent breaks through the political noise, provides meaningful information, concrete action items, and innovative activism opportunities for members to make a positive difference in their communities and beyond. We are a coalition of women who stand for mainstream American values of decency, effective governance, truthful and ethical leadership, and most importantly, a democracy which includes equality, justice, and opportunity for all. We are thrilled as part of our education series to welcome under the tent an array of thought leaders, elected officials, and issue advocates. This evening, we are honored to welcome Sarah Longwell and Bill Crystal under the tent. Both Sarah and Bill may be one of the first never Trumpers to come out of the Republican Party, and Big Tent is grateful for all your hard work in helping win in 2020. Please be sure to use the chat function below to ask questions. Live transcription is enabled, so to turn it on, push the live transcript tab at the bottom of your screen. I will do a brief intro on our speakers, and as I have some questions already sent in, I will start off with these questions, but please feel free to uh, put your questions in the chat and we'll move to that. Before moving to the formal intros, I wanted to add a personal note to my introduction of Bill Crystal. One thing I've learned over the past four years is that when opportunity knocks, never hesitate to knock the door down. Over the past year, Big Tent has really strived to be nonpartisan when at all possible. But with many members leaning a little bit more blue than red, getting access across the aisle was proving to be challenging. It really required us to be very resourceful so on, Jan on June 22nd, 2021, the day of the New York City Democratic primary for mayor, I noticed Bill Crystal tweeted, as a native New Yorker, I'm watching the, today's New York City Democratic primary with interest. Almost my first campaign experience was handing out leaflets on the Upper West Side for the Screven Moynihan Lehman ticket in 1965. I quickly realized that that Lehman candidate he was referring to was my father who was running for New York City controller at that time. How could I not see this as anything other than meant to be an opportunity? So I Googled Bill Crystal. I found his email online and sent him a request to speak. Bill responded back immediately. And now he's here. Just a tweet, but what an opportunity for Big Tent. Bill Crystal has been a leader of the conservative wing of the Republican Party. He was a founder of the Weekly Standard and is a regular guest, as we know, on political commentary shows. Bill served as Chief of Staff to Education Secretary William Bennett in the Reagan administration and as Chief of Staff to Vice President Dan Quayle. He is currently editor-at-large of The Bulwark and founded Republican Voters Against Trump and the Republican Accountability Project, both with Sarah Longwell. We are thrilled to also welcome his partner in crime, Sarah Longwell. She is a Republican political strategist and the publisher of The Bulwark. And along with Bill, she is also founder of Republican Voters Against Trump and the Republican Accountability Project. They have raised millions of dollars to defeat President Trump in 2020, producing hundreds of ads, reaching a narrow but very important segment of persuadable Republicans in key states. Sarah has built a data machine to figure out these swing voters and conducts regular focus groups of Trump voters from the area, trying to figure out what might move them to vote against him in 2020 and beyond. 
She continues these focus groups and has several amazing podcasts, including her newest one called The Focus Group. We welcome both of you under our big tent when we're thrilled to have you here. So I will start off quickly. We've had a lot of questions, but we really, uh, some of the great ones, how did you get to where you are today? What led you both to founding of the Republican Voters Against Trump and then followed up with the Republican accountability? And what do each of you bring to the alliance? Um, let's start with Bill and then feel free to just move forward with uh, Sarah and any of, the, any of your answers. Well, since Sarah's actually more responsible for making this happen, than I am. I, I, let me start with Sarah because she actually made she she's the one who accosted me and said we need to do something. When was that? Mid late twenty seventeen. So you should you should tell that story if you want. Yeah, I mean accosted is the right word. Uh, like right after after Donald Trump was elected, um, I think Bill will back me up on this. There was a lot of rooms of sad Republicans that had gathered to be like, what is going on? What are we going to do? And there was one in particular uh, that I'd been invited to. Uh, it was happening weekly. And it was, it is, it was just a bunch of Republicans kind of trying to figure out what, what are we going to do? What's the next step? How bad is this? What is even going on in the party? And um, Bill was doing uh, what Bill does, which is providing political analysis in the room. And I had been going out of my mind about Trump. And I, uh, I was like, I grew up watching Bill Kristol on TV and reading the Weekly Standard. My parents had just stacks of Weekly Standards. They had the one where I got a book review published. It was turned to that page. So everybody who came in our house knew that I had been published in the Weekly Standard. Uh, and so I was like, hey, you're Bill Kristol. You're famous. Like, we have to do something. We cannot just keep meeting in rooms and talking to each other. And uh, he was kind of like, okay, well, what would we do? And after we're after the meeting ended, I did accost him. I cornered him and uh, inflated my own sense of what I was doing. So that I was running the firm uh, that I was working at before when I was really a senior vice president, going to take it over in a couple of years. Uh, and, and said, really, I think we need to do something fast. And so we ended up getting coffee and, and then we started meeting all the time to, to, and we, there were other people we were talking to at the time, you know, I had this theory of the case that what we needed was strength in numbers. We had to plant a flag somewhere and say, here's where all the Republicans who are opposed to Trump were. Because at the time, everybody was really afraid to be a Republican and speak out. Like the chill had just gone through the movement. Like never Trump had been a thing before Trump got elected. But after he won, nobody knew what to do. And that was when, you know, we decided to start defending democracy together. Really, our original premise was, we're going to figure out how to primary Trump. Uh, and we went to raise some money to do focus groups to figure out if there was enough regular Republicans that, that we felt like we understood left in the party to mount a reasonable challenge and could somebody do it. And it's now public knowledge that, you know, we spent a lot of time with Larry Hogan and he's very seriously considered it. Um, but obviously that didn't come to pass. Uh, and I think he thinks he's going to run in that lane this time. Uh, but but as that, as we picked up steam, you know, we really then just focused on how do we beat Trump in 2020? So Bill, I'll let you add to that and then we can talk about exactly what we did. Yeah, and I think in 27, well, 2018, we got going at the very beginning. So 2018, 19, we also fought Trump on the Hill, Republicans for the rule of law. Some of his attempt, his power grabs, tried to get some Republicans to speak up against it. And occasionally some did, you know, there were some votes against him on emergency powers and so forth. And some people defending Mueller and the Mueller report, we were very involved in that effort. Um, but basically that none of that, uh, I mean, our thesis was, I put it simply, 
that we shouldn't just give up on the Republican Party because there are two major parties in America and they each have about half you know, the seats in Congress and half the governorships and something close to half the votes, not quite for the Republicans. And it's kind of bad for the country if one of them is just authoritarian, dominated by a demagogue, nativist, somewhat racist, uh, and just totally irresponsible. And it was, it's gotten worse actually, but it was obvious even in 2018, 19, how bad that could be. So we did think it was important to fight for the Republican party. Uh, and we tried our best and we didn't uh, succeed. And then we pivoted, I think, responsibly, I've got to say, and I, on this, I'm sort of proud of that we both did this and others who were working with us to say, look, we okay, we're not going to kind of sit around and lament what happened. We need to help Joe Biden. We helped him some in the primaries, actually. There are states where, as you know, uh, independent voters or Republican voters uh, you know, can, can vote in the whichever primary they request a ballot for. Virginia, where I live, there's no party registration. So you just show up and say, like a Democratic ballot. We thought it was important for the reasons that uh, uh, Susan sort of mentioned, I think, uh, that, uh, you know, Biden or a moderate Democrat be the nominee just to have a better chance of beating Trump. So we did a little bit in the primaries and then a lot, obviously, in the general election. And that was Republican voters against Trump. And those were the videos that people did. This is really Sarah's baby and her genius. You maybe should talk about it for a minute. But I mean, yeah, the videos that people did on their cell phones, regular Republican, I mean, the focus group Sarah did showed that people didn't want to hear really from Sarah and me. They didn't want to hear from famous people, particularly, or former office holders. They wanted to hear from people like them who maybe had voted for Trump, or in any case, had uh, maybe sat out 2016, uh, but who were lifelong Republicans and who could say, look, I, I, you know, I didn't like Hillary Clinton. I wasn't, I, I, there's a reason I'm a Republican. Maybe they're pro-life. Maybe they have other, you know, for other reasons. But uh, and they've now reluctantly come to the view that they can't vote for Trump in 2020. That was the most effective message Sarah's research showed. And, and the most effective messengers were these regular people, so to speak. And so it was kind of funny. I mean, if you look at a lot of those videos, some of you may have seen them. Some of them say, you know, I don't really like Joe Biden. I'm not really crazy about it. I, God, I never thought I'd be voting for Joe Biden, but we gotta, we can't have a second term for Trump. And of course the Biden campaign was like, geez, you know, could you take out some of those sentences about how we don't really like Joe Biden? Is that really helpful? But of course it really was helpful, honestly, because if you liked Biden, you were fine anyway. Obviously you were gonna vote uh, for Biden if you were a Democrat, a uh, loyal Democrat or any kind of Democrat. But what was needed was people to speak to those people who did have their doubts and, and, and it was hard for them to get over various hurdles to voting Democratic. So that was what we really focused on through 2020. And Trump lost. And then we thought, OK, new moment. We can now maybe get back to saving the Republican Party and do a bunch of other things and build maybe a centrist movement, both parties, you know, parts of both parties that, that would work together on the Hill. And then it turned out Trump didn't, didn't, didn't agree that he had lost. January 6th happened, and most shockingly, and I'll let Sarah pick up here, most shockingly that the rest of the Republican Party, after a day or two of making it look like, gee, that was really bad, January 6th, decided, okay, we're going along with that too, with the big election lie. And now they've been going along with the anti-vaccine stuff too. So uh, we're in a different place than we were three or four years ago. And by we, both the country and I think Bill and I ourselves, um, insofar as the as Bill said, it was very important to us to take a shot at, at saving the Republican Party or what we thought of as saving the Republican Party. Um, you know, I had spent a lot of my sort of free activist time prior to uh, prior to Trump. I was a part of Log Cabin Republicans, which is the LGBT Republican group. And I had done a ton of work through Don't Ask, Don't Tell and on the marriage debate around convincing conservatives, uh, you know, to support 
gay marriage, especially um, some of sort of the moderate legislators. And so I, I really was devoted to this idea that change came from within and that you had to fight from within the party. Uh, but I also live in the world and uh, I have just had too many conversations with people in Congress, other Republicans and conservatives who say, yeah, it's really, really terrible. I mean, around impeachment, Bill's right. I, I don't know how I neglected the Republicans for the rule of law stuff, because that was really defending the Mueller investigation was how we really got started. Uh, but the number of people that we thought were going to vote for impeachment and uh, where we had every reason to suspect that that was the case, ultimately to not do it was the first sign to us that actually maybe people weren't going to do the right thing. Um, and instead, what we were seeing is one by one, whether it was Jeff Flake, um, you know, people were just getting run out of the party, uh, anybody who, who broached any dissent. And, uh, and so I think we, we evolved as we watched the party completely fall into the thrall of Trump. And after, you know, January 6th was one of those moments where you say to yourself, well, he's finished. He doesn't come back from this. Everybody just watched on live TV. Americans try to like, disrupt the, the, our, our, our exchange of power. Like it's, we've never seen anything like it. Uh, people are in lockdown, people have been shot. And so you think he's no way he comes back from this. And once you saw Kevin McCarthy go down to Mar-a-Lago, you had to say to yourself, this is irretrievably broken because they like he's stronger now than he was before, because if the party thinks they need him that badly after this, if people won't stand up, if Mitch McConnell will condemn him on the Senate floor and yet do nothing about it, we have a, such a big problem. And so I think for Bill and I, we've become and I'll just I'll leave it here in terms of where we are now. The focus has to be on how do you hold this dangerous version of the Republican party off of having political power? And that's gonna be extremely difficult to do for a lot of baked in fundamentals around our politics. Uh, but our entire focus is we became narrowly, we have developed a deep expertise in these college educated suburban voters uh, who really didn't like Trump, many of whom were willing to vote for Biden. And we call them future former Republicans or red dog Democrats. And everything we do now is thinking about 22 and 24, because we think Trump is going to run again. And even if he's not, we think we should operate as though he is. And it is about how do you continue to peel off those college educated suburban voters uh, and, and put them in the column for Democrats so that you can have the biggest, broadest pro-democracy coalition possible and, and one of the things I'll say doing all the focus groups is that, look, a lot of these people who voted for Romney and voted for McCain, they're not necessarily comfortable in the Democratic political coalition, but they're not that comfortable in the Republican political coalition now either, because they look at Marjorie, they, they're all vaccinated, these types of voters. They are, they believe the election wasn't stolen. They are horrified by January 6th. They don't make excuses for it. So those people don't fit particularly comfortably with Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn, Paul Gosar, Louis Gomer, it goes on and on. And it's important, you know, the Republicans do a really good job of defining Democrats by what they would think are their most extreme members. 
Democrats do not return that favor well. And the fact is the mainstream of the Republican Party now, 161 Republicans refuse to certify that election. The mainstream of the party is now com like completely outside the bounds. And, and I think we've got to get really tough about trying to wedge off that sensible minority that remains in the party and get them into that broad uh, pro-democracy coalition. And that's, that's how you win. And that's everything we're focused on now. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we have. All that everyone's questions are all about that and how you will hold the Republicans accountable. We have questions about: Are you going to um, work on focusing on any right wing media and any disinformation? How does that play into it? From particularly from the Republican party aspect. And given that, Bill, you had said that it's so important to have these two political parties, if we don't really have that right now, and is there a chance that we might, I think Robert Kagan talked in the Washington Post about potentially bringing some of the Mitt Romneys into a coalition, a voting coalition. Is that, there's the, is there some thought for that to hold other Republicans accountable? Yeah, so on that, I, I think that would be one way to, well, so yeah, I think ultimately the only way to have a, say, a healthy Republican Party probably is to defeat the Trump Republican Party pretty decisively. And 2020 wasn't, unfortunately, a really decisive defeat. It was a pretty big margin of the popular vote, electoral college, a little close for comfort, but Republicans picked up a dozen House seats. They ended up 50-50 in the Senate, but they didn't go below 50, um, held you know, governorships in, in some states, and, big, and they have it in big states. Uh, they're doing okay in the polls. So right now, they don't feel that they're paying a huge price. In fact, they probably feel a lot of them not crazy about Trump, but, you know, can't afford to get rid of to lose those Trump voters. And maybe we could just stitch together the Trump voters and the more respect respectable types. So I live in Virginia. Glenn Youngkin's running for governor here. And I live in McLean, Northern Virginia, not so unlike uh, Greenwich, you know, in, in Connecticut, though the state as a whole is, is, is less, um, less blue than Connecticut. But a lot of my neighbors, I would say, are former Republicans, they voted for Biden. They didn't vote for Trump. They're, they're decent people. They can't tolerate that. But they sort of want to talk themselves into being for Glenn Youngkin. They kind of want to feel like, you know, we can get these business guys back. He's the former CEO, co-CEO of Carla. You know, and he says these things. He panders a little to the election integrity stuff, which he has. He panders a little to the anti-vaccine stuff, which he has done. He's against mandates. Uh, but he's, he himself says he's been vaccinated and he urges people to get it. So he's a little more responsible. And uh, for me, that's not acceptable. I mean, so, you know, that, I mean, look, it's better than some lunatic, but it's not ultimately, it's too much pandering, too much accommodating, and it ends up being a Trump party with an establishment wing legitimating the Trump party. And that is not good. So I actually endorsed her. I mean, the post called me up and asked, and I said I was supporting Terry McAuliffe and, uh, and, uh, Went to, actually went to the debate last night with McAuliffe and uh, and Youngkin. Didn't really expect, I mean, I've known Terry a long time, you know, just in Washington, the season around, I was around, debated. Didn't really expect to be supporting Terry McAuliffe for governor of Virginia, though he was a perfectly decent moderate governor several years ago. Um, but I'm happy to do so now. And I think it's very important that, for example, the Republicans look up even this year after, you know, a month from now and say, geez, we might have won the governorship of Virginia, but we, we just lose too many votes when we have 
uh, a Trumpy party. And recall if this was a little ludicrous last night, we were all laughing about it this morning with Sarah, but you know, mentioned me at they said debate. I've got the support of conservatives and Republicans like Bill Crystal and another guy, Dave Ramadan, who's a House of Delegates, uh, former House of Delegates member. And of course, everyone on Twitter, all the, the Youngkin people and a lot of pro-Trump people. He's not a conservative anymore. That doesn't you get no credit at all for having that. I have zero belief that I'm gonna swing any or many votes in Northern Virginia. But McAuliffe, to his credit, though, is saying over and over, I can work with Republicans. He was a pretty bipartisan governor, Republican legislature when he was governor. And, you know, I and people like Bill Crystal supporting me, and that shows that I'm going to try to be a centrist governor. So very much like Biden, really, in the, in the presidential. And I think that's the right strategy. We'll see if McAuliffe wins. You know, sometimes you get swamped by tides you can't control. If the Democrats blow up over the next month in Washington, that could be unfortunate. But I, I think that is the way to win, honestly, the way to broaden the victory the way to ultimately discredit the Trump, the Trump Republicans. And so we're going to, you know, so we're, we're going to work on that. We're, I do think we can speak. And I think we'll call if I've talked to Terry thinks this too, we can speak to some of those voters in a sort of better way, honestly, than a lot of the traditional Democrats. It's not a criticism of them. You know, I think I, I wouldn't speak as well to uh, Democratic voters as someone who's been in the Democratic Party for 20, 30 years. I think we understand those voters, though, and Sarah's done a ton of work on this and ranging from focus groups when we've done polling. But I think just instinctively, frankly, we kind of understand their concerns. We understand what messages might work with them, what messages might sort of put them off. And that shouldn't dominate. Obviously, Democrats are entitled to have their own messages and they're entitled to speak to their own voters and they have to to turn them out and everything. But I think we can add something. I think that's a distinctive, in a sense, thing we can add for next year. And the good news is there are a lot of moderate centrist capable Democrats and they're winning the primaries incidentally. Every single Democratic primary in 2021 where there's been a contest between the sort of center and the left has been won by a centrist, uh, including New York City mayor and uh, the Ohio, uh, the Cleveland uh, congressional race and and, and McCall will form the primary in Virginia and, uh, and the other candidates are pretty good. So um, we'll see what happens in the future, but I think that's our main focus Right now. now, we could support individual Republicans. We're certainly helping the Republicans who voted against impeachment, who voted for impeachment in the primary challenges they have. It's better for the country to have a few reasonable Republicans in Congress than none. But I, and I actually talked to Romney about Bob Kagan's piece in particular. It's, you know, since Bob calls out Romney in a sense and says you could do more, he really could do more. And there could be a caucus of constitutional Republicans in the Senate, maybe the House too, who are working with some of the Democrats and preventing McConnell from just getting 50 Republican votes against the debt ceiling, you know? I've got to say though, it's been disappointing. I mean, these are, you know, someone like Romney, who's been personally courageous, I've got to say, on the impeachment stuff uh, and denouncing Trump and not voting for Trump, but he, he just, Somehow they just can't quite break free, you know, and uh, I don't know quite. But again, we just have to keep hammering and trying and maybe at some point they they do. Yeah. I guess one thing I would I would add to that, um, you know, I think for Bill and I at this point, we're, we would consider ourselves single issue voters. Uh, and that issue is is democracy and er, e, even more, even more to the point, it's truth. Right. So any a Yunkin, anybody who's playing footsie with the big lie. Uh, is disqualified. But if you look ahead to 22 um, and 24, but especially 22, you know, one of the things that we don't know yet is Donald Trump engaged more voters on both sides than have been engaged ever, uh, certainly in our lifetimes, right? I mean, ever. And so I think that right now, Trump uh, sort of in, in bad news for Democrats, Trump is very much on the ballot 
for the people who want to avenge him. You know, there's a theory, people ask me this all the time. They're like, well, doesn't it backfire? Because Trump says everything's rigged and then people don't turn out to vote. That is not uh, what you hear from voters. They say, no, you got to beat them by so much that they can't cheat. Uh, that, that is like, and so I feel like there's a lot of um, energy on the Trumpy side and it's like some and toxic energy. Whereas the, all of the people who turned out to vote against Trump, uh, I think there's a real open question about whether or not Trump's on the ballot for them. Uh, and I think that that's where you get sort of an asymmetric turnout situation. The one thing that is going, the, 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 on, the, on the flip side, Trump cannot help but insert himself into 2022. And so what he is doing is he is endorsing some of the most lunatic fringe candidates that you could possibly imagine. I don't know if anybody here is from Georgia, but Herschel Walker, who is a very famous football player, would, is endorsed by Trump. McConnell recently came out and said he's warming to him. Herschel Walker has had so like breaks in his mental health in which he's been on media, like Howard Stern show talking about how he played Russian roulette with himself. Uh, you know, just the craziest things you can imagine. He election was stolen, um, but it's, it's pretty bananas. And on top of that, you've got people like Eric Reitens who had to resign uh, previously because he had tied a woman up in his basement photographed her and blackmailed her, and he scammed a veterans charity. He's out there hustling for Trump's endorsement in Missouri. You've got Josh Mandel, who keeps running around doing things like lighting masks on fire. Um, and, and, you know, despite the fact that his grandparents were refugees, constantly saying horrible things about refugees. Like, he just demagoguing race, everything toxic you can imagine. That dynamic lends itself to Trump being on the ballot, potentially, for some of those lesser propensity voters on the left who start to see this. And, and also for our voters who have what I would call a Reagan hangover, they just, they just don't watch it closely enough to realize that the entire Republican party is Trumpy. They still think, well, it's the party of low taxes and limited government. And as they see these candidates emerge, I think there's a chance that they start to say, you know what, this actually is not the party. I already see it in the focus groups of swing voters uh, where they feel sort of unmoored and they don't know what to make of this version of the Republican Party. And so there is an opportunity in 22 for Trump to be on the ballot for the people he repels uh, in addition to the people that he attracts. And to ask, uh, John Cooper asked, is how do we center Dems engage in the center and engage with the center Republicans so we can meet in the middle? Is having Trump on the ballot in quotes in 2022 one way can we bring together the center right to meet up with the center left based on, on the trumping on the ballot? Is that helpful? Or have you found that in your polling that's not been as helpful? I don't know, Bill, if you wanna, I just talked a lot. But um, yeah, I, I do think, look, I think that the goal now should not just be meeting Republicans where they are, it should be converting. Republicans. So there's a trade going on in the political parties. And, and our parties are actually being comprised now of different people, which is why, so white working class voters, many of whom, uh, let's say we're in unions, let's, you're talking about the, just, uh, you know, just outside Pittsburgh, Steeltown, those types of places where I'm from in Pennsylvania, those folks are culturally pretty MAGA. And they used to vote reliably Democrat, 
and now they vote for Trump and they don't vote on economic issues. They vote on things like critical race theory and Dr. Seuss and uh, pick your pick your hot flash in the pan, whatever Sean Hannity's freaking out about uh, at the moment. On the flip side, they've been trading for a group of college educated suburban voters like Maricopa County is a great example of this, where it used to be pretty red, lots of just yeah, college educated, right leaning independent voters, John McCain country. Those people are starting to vote for Democrats. You have to accelerate the trend uh, on the ones who are going the Democrat. It's already happening demographically, right? That shift is already occurring, but you need to outpace those white working class voters who are, and, and, and there's a lot of these suburban sort of right-leaning independent voters. Uh, and so you've got to be converting them into red dog Democrats. And that's, that is how we're thinking about politics these days is, and that's why what's important, I think on the democratic side, right? You need the, con the conditions. It's not just the conditions on the right. The conditions on the left have to be such. So Pennsylvania is a great example of this. Donald Trump has nominated a crazy person uh, named Sean Parnell. Um, and on the Democrats are gonna have a really hard primary between a very progressive candidate named John Fetterman and a very moderate candidate named Connor Lamb. Our real preference would be that Connor Lamb is the candidate that emerges because Connor Lamb will pick up tons of those swing voters. Um, and you know, it's, it's sort of, it's the same Bernie Biden debate. There's a debate about, well, Fetterman's more progressive and he'll pick up, you know, some of these economic, uh, voters. And I think our, our assessment is at this point, the cultural issues, Trump, no pun intended, the economic populist issues. And the other thing I would just add, Susan, I mean, on your question, there are issues we, we are working with together on. I think the for example, there's an original bill, HR1, the campaign reform, ethics reform, financing reform, there was a lot in it. It was a big liberal wish list, which I don't say negatively. There were things liberals have been for for a long time. Some of them were good ideas, some maybe not so practical, some probably thrown out by the courts. Um, we worked pretty closely with, we, we, there was no chance of getting Republican support for that. Some of that stuff was just, uh, they're not gonna be for public financing for, for elections, that's just been a, for whatever reason, Republicans have just always hated that. And incidentally, I'm not sure I'm really, do I really want my taxpayer money matching the $200 contributions to Marjorie Taylor Greene? You know, the, the irony is this was something liberals thought of 20 years ago when it would help insurgent liberal Howard Dean, you know, Bernie Sanders types. The actual math now, if you had public financing for contributions less than $200, which is basically what the bill does, is it would help more MAGA types than anyone else. So Manchin, to his credit on this, I think, you know, took the bill, said he couldn't support all of it, but he wanted to work on it. He wanted to see some Republican support. We haven't gotten him honestly much in the way of Republican senators support, but I'm struck and I kind of joke with Sarah about this, like what does he care about, you know, our support, but it makes it, makes it easier for him in West Virginia to say, I've come up with a different bill. It's not, one of, it's not this big liberal bill. It's a targeted bill to make sure they can't steal the election. They can't overturn the election. Some basic fundamental voting rights and anti-voting suppression stuff, pretty good uh, uh, anti-gerrymandering provision, not quite as extensive as the original one. And I've got these Republicans who say it's good, and we put up some ads in West Virginia, actually, uh, Republicans for voting rights supporting it. So I think we can play a role in helping at least at least that legislation get more respectable, and, and certainly it's got all the support of all Democrats, including Manchin, whether we can actually get Republicans to support it, whether we can give cover then for Schumer and Manchin if they want to, to break the filibuster, that's a much more complicated question. But I do think we have a little bit of ability to make these 
some of these pieces of legislation look less partisan and more and more centrist. Where, where do you see SB8 and, and women's role going forward um, as it relates to the SBA, which is the Texas abortion law? Has that changed any of the ideas of the women or do you see, uh, are women still gonna play an important role in, in 2022 and 24 and how can we galvanize them? Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, I've done testing on the uh, abortion piece, and and the the vigilante part of it absolutely freaks people out. Um, but I will tell you, there a lot of people don't know about that aspect of it, uh, and you really have to make it an issue in a way that, and and this is, I mean, this is just sort of the messaging situation. We were we were talking about this before we started, but. Um, you know, I do these focus groups with voters all the time. And a lot of times there'll be like a big breaking news. Like I remember I was in Ohio the day that 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 Trump got on the stage with Vladimir Putin and sided uh, with Putin over America's intelligence community. And everyone I know is freaking out. It's all over Twitter. And I walk into the focus group room and I'm like, well, what did you think about Trump's meeting with Putin? And I mean, 10 people are just staring at me blankly. And I think that being aware of how much if you don't live in Texas, it's not, you know, it was a three day news cycle and people were amped up about it on MSNBC. That does not mean that it has penetrated uh, the psyches, you know, in a big way. And so I think that element of vigilantism is something you have to teach people about. You have to say it over and over again. And, you know, with messaging, you may be sick of hearing it, but there's a lot of people who haven't heard it for the first time. So you got to keep sort of pounding away at it. Um, but that, that the women, I mean, when in our strategy in, in 2020, focusing on college educated suburban women was essential because that is a demographic that's moving. Now it turned out men were moving quite a bit too. And it really had a little bit more to do with education, but I do think that, um, you know, getting to, to these women, that's one of your most sort of, uh, ripe, uh, groups of people that can still be kind of peeled away. I mean, on that, I think, so there's the Texas, the Texas thing is horrendous. Uh, young, um, uh, young can actually is here in Virginia said he doesn't support it. He was under such pressure. Uh, maybe that's cross pressuring and hurting him a little bit with some of his uh, more really fervent pro-life supporters and, and sort of Trumpy supporters. Hard to know, but it, it's good to have, you know, it's always good to cause trouble for the other party and, and cause rifts in it. But I mean, abortion is going to be a big issue because the Mississippi case is going to be, is going to be argued December 1st, which is the more respectable, let's call it pro-life case. It's a 15 week limit. Um, it, it is, you know, it's, it's not crazy with a vigilante thing or whatever. It's just a standard kind of, you know, abortion ban after a certain amount of time. Not just, but that's what it is. Uh, people think the court might uphold it. Maybe they'll modify it a little. Some people think the court might overturn Roe, but it's pretty likely, I'd say, overwhelmingly likely that on July 1st or thereabouts at the end of the Supreme Court term in 2022, there will be a big abortion decision. I don't think personally they'll overturn Roe. A lot of my friends think they will, or they might cut it back though. But anyway, it's going to be, uh, that really will be headlines. I think that will break through. It's only to voters who care about that issue. Um, I think that could be do a lot of, that will be, uh, should be good for Democrats. I mean, just all the polling, again, whatever the merits, whatever one thinks about it, the people do not want uh, you know, the full pro-life menu in most of the country. Uh, they, they don't, they want abortion rights preserved. They're open to some restrictions. 
Um, and I think if that gets on the ballot, to use the term we were using earlier, that's probably good for Democrats. But, and this is where I think we can play a role, some of the messaging is more effective with swing voters who are sort of ambivalent about the issue than other messaging. And if you just sort of scream and yell that everyone has an absolute right, and it's, you know, no one who, you know, cares, thinks there's any scintilla of truth on the other side is just a religious fanatic. And, you know, if, if that's the kind of tone of it, uh, that's not very effective for your swing voters in Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, you know, but, but if you said, look, this is too extreme and this is wrong and we need to have a much more uh, moderate uh, way of going about this, we can't abridge this fundamental right that's been there for 50 years, it's going to cause chaos uh, and it's unfair and unjust. I mean, I think there's, so I, that's going to be, a lot of things are going to happen over the next year. Well, that's why, you know, we'll try to react to them uh, in real time and we will. And I think it's important to do that and not overthink sometimes, right? We don't know what the environment's going to look like in foreign policy, the economy, some of these other issues a year from now. But that's just one example. But I do think it's going to make, Sarah, I haven't really had a chance to talk about this that much, but I think it's going to make women, frankly, and women, women's issues more central in 2022. It could be another year of the woman. Like 1992, I'm, I'm, I'm the only person here old enough to remember this, but 1992 uh, was the year of the woman. It's like a three, at that time it was a huge number. I think it was three or four uh, Democratic women senators won, I think defeating incumbents in, in most cases because Casey against Planned Parenthood had been argued by in the court that term and it was a big decision in 92 when the Bush White House was in favor of overturning Roe and Republicans were mostly as a party. And uh, that was emphasized at the Republican convention that year and it did lead to a backlash. So I think that that's kind of an instance of a place where with the right framing of the issue that could hurt, um, that could hurt Republicans quite a lot next year. So we have um, a lot of questions. We always do on this one subject of messaging from the, particularly from the Democratic Party. But there are questions that we have for you about how um, Sue asked, you know, how do you communicate with people who only watch right-wing media? How do you get the message to them? And, and it goes along the line with what, in an ideal world, what, how would the Dems be messaging if, they, if you could? What, you know, what, are, what are they doing that's not resonating with some of the people or how, what is the sort of strategy that you'll have for going forward in the messaging? Well, one of the biggest things as I would say is that if somebody is watching OANN or Newsmax or tells me as, as they do often in the focus groups that Fox has become too liberal so they only watch Tucker and then the rest of the time they're watching something else, uh, you should not try to message to that person. That person's gone, let them go. Uh, you need to focus and we focus, right? If 78%, which is what the numbers are right now, of Republicans think that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, you got to focus on the 22% that doesn't. Uh, that's our target. And again, this is a peel away strategy. Um, this is a permission structure strategy. This is about getting real Republicans uh, to make videos themselves. The grainier, the more organic, the better. And it's just them saying, I've had it. I'm done. I'm out. I will vote for a tomato can over these crazy people. And you need that kind of stuff pumped into these suburban places like Bucks County, you know, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where, you know, people, you just, you can see the purpling up. Like if you watched it happen on a map, you could see it go from red to purple to bluer. And you just need to push into that and start accelerating those trends. And so you really are focused on, that same part and you got to let the other we do this sometimes like we advertise on newsmax and we 
I mean, it's just basically a death threat generator. Like, like we advertise on them and all we do is just like get a hate mail. And, and mostly we do it for the earned media side of it because the persuasion effects there aren't great. Uh, they're just, these people, they listen to Mike Flynn and Sidney Powell all the time. They think Trump is gonna be reinstated uh, or they swim in a toxic soup of, of people who believe those things. And they see it on Facebook, amplified on social media. It's in their communities, all the people that they know. And so you've got to, we've got to focus on the people who are gettable. I mean, the good news is there are, you know, 20, 25%, it's bad for the country that that's not 50 or 75%, but it's not nothing, you know, it would switch a heck of a lot of elections. It's tens of millions, a couple of 10, 20 million people. So uh, there are Republicans and independents who have voted Republican who are gettable. But I, yeah, I mean, look, we have a deep problem in this country, in my opinion, of, uh, we've gone beyond partisanship, really beyond hyper-partisanship now to, to a kind of uh, polarization in which you just have people in their own news bubbles and people being driven now by hatred of the other side in a way that's really dangerous and, and crazy, honestly. And, and sort of even hard to tell what it's based on because it's not exactly based on any one issue or anything. It's just based on I, hating everything they stand for. And when societies get to that point, it generally is bad for that society. And we are in a bad dangerous situation. We should think much more about what to do about that. And that's a social media question and a Facebook question and a, uh, you know, a lot of other questions, right? Um, I do think in the short term, honestly, though, for people like Sarah and me who are more politically oriented, the key is to peel off that 5, 10, 15, 20% who, who are gettable. I mean, the studies do show this very consistently. 70% of Republicans watch Fox. Uh, uh, those who, yeah, I think it's a, a 70% of Republicans tend to watch Fox, OAN, those kinds of things. They are, you can't persuade them of anything. But 30% is not nothing. They tend to watch the networks. They tend to watch, you know, the more, you know, mix of shows. Uh, and those people are more open to saying, yeah, that seems a little crazy. Maybe that's not right. You know, we call them the vaccinated Republicans. If, you know, if they're willing to deal with reality on the vaccine, if they're willing to deal with, and maybe that's a good, the vaccine, McAuliffe is just hammering Yunkin on that, I think with some effect. And I think that might be something it's terrible for the country, obviously, that we've got hundreds of thousands of people unnecessarily dead. But politically, it is a kind of case study for some people out there, I think, who look up and say, what, what is, I mean, this is crazy, you know? And what we've seen all these cases of people sadly losing friends and relatives because they were persuaded not to get vaccinated. You gotta think that's gotta have some political effect. I'm very glad Biden's gotten much tougher on it and with the mandates and all that, which A, work, and B, I do think, frankly, you know, are the right thing to do for the country and sort of frame the issue more dramatically about, look, we have, we have responsibility for the public health and we can't sit around pretending that it's like, gee, it's, we don't want to impose too much on anyone. And so we're not going to let, we're not going to make teachers of five-year-old kids or healthcare workers in, in nursing homes get vaccinated. So just going one more about messaging, as I said, it's, it's a big issue for us. Uh, Mary Himes asks, which issues, economic or cultural, are more likely to provide that kind of party loyalty switches that you all are speaking about? And in addition, is the democracy, protecting democracy, does that resonate if you say it that way? Or is it really the economic or cultural issues that you think are going to pull them to the... Right side. Well, let me let me say a word and let Sarah, who's done many more focus groups on this, um, talk about it. I would say the Biden people think, not foolishly, that yeah, we have to deliver things, infrastructure, economic, child tax credit. I'm for delivering things. I hope they succeed on some of this legislative agenda. 
I, I'm very dubious that that's going to fundamentally change people's votes. That they're going to see a bridge being built in their district. Child tax credit is a little different because it's actual cash. If you're strapped and you have two or three kids and you know you're trying to pay for childcare, that's a different story. But I'm very dubious about the economic explanation. Uh, some of the cultural stuff is just so baked in; it's hard to to do. But but there are issues, and we discussed a couple of them: vaccine, maybe Roe v. Wade, um, others, uh, the kind of craziness. Uh, just looking, you know, uh, well, crazy, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene sort of stuff. But you've got to think that that turns off some voters. But I, I yeah, I, I, I'm worried that the Biden, I don't blame, I mean, I think Biden should stay focused on governing and probably getting this legislation passed. But I'm a little worried that Democrats have talked themselves into the notion that if only we deliver the goods, you know, that's going to be great. And like that would have been great 30 years ago. But I, I'm not so sure that that works in, in the current environment. I don't know. What do you think, Sarah? Well, I, no, I 100% agree with that. I, I think it's cultural. And I think um, and it, it's cultural, I mean, it in a lot of different ways. So, you know, one of the things, if you asked a centrist Democrat in Congress who had a real tight shave in uh, 2020 with their election, they will tell you that defund the police and some of the other things that were going on just hurt them so badly. And, and you know, people can can argue about whether or not that's the case. I certainly think that that is the case because what's going on right now is a battle of who is crazier, uh, right? Like, and, and the question of, do they care about democracy? I wish with all my heart that I ever heard somebody say in one of these focus groups that it was about democracy. Like uh, this is, it is not, people do not think about, democracy is like water if you're a fish, air that you breathe. It is not something people like put their fingers on and think about. They think about things like crime, um, they think about things like, uh, they think about things tribally, um, you know, they think about things that annoy them, uh, like, like, but why did they ban Dr. Seuss? That sounds terrible. Like, that's the kind of stuff that comes up. Um, and Republicans know that, which is why Republicans don't feel like they need an affirmative policy strategy. Republicans don't have an affirmative, they cut taxes, cool. That's it, that was, they got nothing else in the tank as far as a thing that they wanna do. So they spend all their time branding Democrats as crazy. Meanwhile, the just base of their party, I call it the Republican triangle of doom, which is the toxic relationship between the right-wing media, the elected officials and the voters where they're in this crazy feedback loop where like you take something like January 6th and you got the elected officials saying, oh, this is so bad, this is terrible. Uh, I'm done with Trump, says Lindsey Graham. But then the right-wing media gets a hold of them and says, I don't know, that was an Antifa false flag operation. That was Black Lives Matter. Did you see the way the cops just let them in? Nancy Pelosi probably did that. And then before you know it, the voters are calling their elected officials saying, how dare you say this was Trump's fault? This is, what are you doing? And then they shout at them in an airport. And pretty soon you've got the elected officials saying, yeah, you know what? Uh, nothing, nothing to see here on January 6th. And that is how this radicalization happens. Um, but they think they can win on these, on these cultural issues. And I think they're right. Uh, and, and we have to, and, you know, I'll just complain about Democrats for one second and their messaging, if you'll permit me, which is these bills that are going through right now, I'm not even gonna get into the way that they're playing chicken with Biden's entire domestic agenda. These things are so big. If they were literally passing single, like just clean bills on child tax credit, something that people could understand, get their heads around and be like, we did this for you. These bills are so enormous that nobody has any idea what's in them. They have no, and, and, and I guess the theory is they were gonna 
push them through, pass them, and then spend a year telling everybody what was in them and like, look at all this good stuff we got for you. But they're not generating super public will about them because there's just like, what is this? And for swing voters, they're like, I don't know, that sounds like a ton of money. Um, and so I just think they're messaging. And I think that Biden is going to get no credit from these MAGA voters for materially improving their lives with checks. I see it all the time after COVID. They would, you'd be like, did you, did you, what did you do with the check that you got? And they're like, well, either they think it was a waste of money and they didn't need it, or they gave it to somebody else who didn't deserve it and they didn't get as much as they thought. Like they found a way to be resentful of it. And anyway, I just, I think they'd be better off with smaller, narrower, targeted things that, that they could go sell and run on. Yep, and they got to get COVID under control. Yeah. I think we all, I think many of us agree and we've been looking about the whole messaging. Uh, one sort of one other question that um, Vanessa asked is about corporations. Can we ask that, can we hold them accountable? Can they play any role in in this whole process of defending democracy? Is it working to do the, you know, Texas corps or any of the Georgia? Did you see any positive from that? I'm talking a lot, Bill. Do you want to talk about it? Now, what do you think? I mean, what do you find when you talk to people? I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, well, I guess, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think, look, I think a lot of the voters we're talking about, upper middle-class voters, a lot of them, work for corporations or have relatives who work for corporations or understand that it's important to the well-being of America that these corporations do well, even if you have some qualms about, you know, big business and so forth and some of these businesses. And therefore, I do think if you're a citizen in, in Georgia and you look around and it looks like, gee, I don't know, Coca-Cola and Delta and all these massive companies that have paid for, you know, that, that employ a lot of people and have endowed you know, <laughs> chairs at universities and the concert hall and stuff, you know, we're saying, well, this is terrible, but it does make them look extreme. So yeah, I'm sort of for the corporations doing some of this stuff. I don't think there's much backlash. I don't think people think, oh my God, business is bossing us around. I also would say that the corporations, however, have a limited attention span and have a lot of pressure internally. Maybe it's foolish, but you know, we can't really antagonize too many people for too long. So there's a big hoopla. And then about two months later, it turns out that they're kind of giving money to everyone again, and they're not really following through on some of this. And uh, I think it's harder. I do think though, for example, on COVID, you know, Sarah just mentioned, I just want to come back to that. That's such a big deal. And Biden did a good job on it. Um, I think a little less good the last two, three months. Uh, but now picking it up again, I think with the mandates, they should have the testing much, much more rapid, quick testing, I think, than they have as, as they do in Europe and a couple other, but when they can get the vax for the five to 11 year olds, it would be good. I, but I think the corporate, the mandate has worked. I mean, people do know that United Airlines is now requiring everyone to be vaccinated and that there's all this talk about how many people are going to quit and less than one, fewer than one, where they, you know, I don't know what it was, 212 people or something allegedly have quit. And most of them really aren't going to turn out to have quit, quit once they, once they, give them an extra week to get vaccinated. So, I mean, I do think corporate America can be an ally. I wouldn't overdo it. I think they don't have much staying power in some of these fights, but I, I think they're, I think they can be helpful. Great. So I have um, a couple of rapid fire questions I thought I could, we could ask you. Um, and some of them are basically yes and no. Uh, some might just require a name or so. Um, is that okay if I just sort of ask you guys and all right. Uh, are you going to start a new party? <laughs> no. Um, what keeps you up at night? Donald Trump running in 2024. Yeah. 
Exactly. How about Donald you know? Trump winning in 2024? Yeah. Winning either really winning or stealing the election in 2024. Because the second actual term of Trump in the White House would be extremely dangerous for the country. Yeah. Uh, what are your biggest partners in your work from the D and the R side? You know, what, who are you working with the most? I mean, we work with a lot of people on both sides. I mean, I would say that here, here's what here on the right. Here's what happens. Every Republican, so Stephen Richer and and, and William Gates are there, the um, county supervisors there in Maricopa County, who defended as Republicans the count against the cyber ninjas. Every time a Republican sticks their neck out in this country and they get slammed by their own party, like right now, Kelly Ward is threatening to sue them and throw them in jail. They find us first. Like they all come to us. They because we're the ones who can help them with message, messaging. We know where the donors are. Who can support them on the left? I mean, I've been working with everybody from the ACLU to Fair Fight, uh, and and it it was hard actually in 2020 because you needed people to trust you, and you were the Republicans sitting there, and so it took a little while. But now I think um, some of my closest, both friends and strategic partners, are some of the people who are doing good operative work uh, and democracy work uh, on the Dem side. Um, both of you, what is your prediction for? 2022, where do you see it landing? I think they're gonna get creamed in the, Dems are gonna get creamed in the house and uh, they're gonna be able to put up a decent fight in the Senate, candidate dependent. And you've really got to focus on the Senate. Um, you should do your best to, everything though should be hold off as many, hold off the, we, there's a huge difference between a wave election and one where they pick up seats. And we, even if you're gonna, you gotta fight against a wave election, it would be catastrophic. Yeah, I'm a little more optimistic, I, I, but I, I think holding the Senate is super important and there we might be helped by Trumpy type candidates in, in Georgia or in Pennsylvania or Ohio who might not win in a state where otherwise a Republican could win in an off year. But how's the Democrats, they did lose 12 seats in 2020. So they've lost some of the ones they that were vulnerable already, if you know what I mean? And they have very good candidates in some of these Swing districts, very good incumbents, um, Virginia, for example, with Spanberger and Luria and others, who I think might be able to hold on uh, even in a kind of normal off year way. But it's tough with such a tiny majority. Very important, though, I totally agree with Sarah to have if you lose seven seats, Liz Cheney said she wouldn't support McCarthy for speaker. So if Liz Cheney and Kinzinger are there, suddenly the Republican control of the House becomes extremely dicey. They can still do a lot of irresponsible things, obviously, but it much, much different, both psychologically, but also actually mechanically over the next two years if, if Republicans pick up a few seats and swing the House or have, have a wave. I think a wave would be very, very demoralizing, but better to hold both the House and the Senate, that's for sure. Uh, what would be your uh, DNR nominees in 2024? That we want or that is going to happen? <laughs> oh, well, we'll take both. Like, who do you, yeah. who do you well, want? <laughs> uh, I would like a very nice sort of Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar centrist uh, on the Dem side and on the right. Uh, I would like, uh, my fantasy pick is a, is a Larry Hogan, uh, who I think is going to run. And have a very difficult time doing so. You know, I think Trump is likely to be the nominee. I don't think it's certain that he, you know, he may not run and that he may conceivably be defeated, but I think it's prudent to plan on on a Trump nomination. And I think you have to work everything backwards from there in terms of who would, how much could he be weakened in primaries by helping some people, even if they're not people who 
everyone would love on every issue. And if Liz Cheney's willing to write in 2024, and she is a real conservative, but she's good on the Constitution and on the rule of law, uh, and could take 20, 30% in a bunch of primaries against Trump, that would have a big effect in the general could have a big effect in the general election. You know, it's easier to get voters to peel off against an incumbent if they have already voted against him or her in the in the primary, right? So, um, so we would have stuff to do, I think, on the Republican side, even if it looks like a Trump nomination in 2024. Democrats, I don't know. I mean, I would have said Biden six months ago, hoping that you know he might he might still be in good shape and all that. But I somehow psychologically, I mean, this is pure just you know feeling. I, I kind of feel like there'll be a generational change, which could be an opportunity, of course, especially if Trump's the nominee, but then it has to be the right person. And, and it's a big step up to run for president, obviously. Um, and finally, uh, how can we help you? Um, we're putting a, in the chat, we'll put a link to uh, your group, um, donate money, I assume, but are there any other things we can do to support you all? Well, we really appreciate you inviting us to speak um, and and taking the time to talk to us. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think so. I'll, I'll tell you something. Sue, who I know a little bit, Sue Mandel, um, has been really good behind the scenes connecting me to people that she thinks are good in the space. Who is doing you know really good work and some of the people that I was talking about before that I now work closely with are people that um, in groups like this uh, and people who you know, our, our donors are just plugged in connecting me with those people who are like, you know, you guys should know each other. You guys should work together. Some of that has proven like extraordinarily fruitful. Um, yeah. Also DeSantis is going to run if Trump doesn't, and he will definitely be the nominee. Sorry. I just wanted to cap that for the other one. Really ending on it up. On a <laughs> That's the only other thing in addition to obviously support and other supporters and networking is, you know, ideas. I mean, you guys, you're all around the country. You see things sometimes. You see an issue bubbling up that we don't see yet in Washington. You see something that might be good or bad, honestly, that we should be more worried about than we than we should. There were people who saw the defund the police thing coming very early in Minnesota and some states, and I wish people had paid more attention to them early, the potency of that issue um, after the George Floyd riots and all that. And people didn't want to hear that at the time, but it's important. To, so kind of eyes and ears around the country are very, is very useful too. Well, um, Bill and Sarah, thank you so much for the time you spent with us. Um, it's been amazing to hear from you. It's also terrifying. And, but we are proud to be part of the Defending Democracy Coalition. Consider us your allies and we're here to be your worker bees. Um, and we will continue to provide our members with all the resources available to fight back. Uh, thank you for coming to Big Ten and we look forward to supporting you as we move closer to 2022 and 24. Um, for everyone else on the call, Big Ten is not slowing down. Uh, please sign up for our continued Tent Talk Spotlight series. Uh, we are honored to have Nancy Northrup, President and CEO of Center for Reproductive Rights, coming on Wednesday, October 27th. Um, and they will focus on the litigation that's going on in Texas, as well as some other ones around the country um, on reproductive rights. And following our continued priority to bring together a pro-democratic -democ coalition, we are thrilled to welcome Charlie Whelan, beloved uh, senior lecturer at Dartmouth, and founder and co-chair of Unite America, an organization dedicated to bringing together the, and bridging the growing partisan divide and fostering a more representative and functional government. That's gonna be on December 1st. And we are working on a surprise speaker in November and our engagement continues. Vote Forward is coming by October 12th to discuss the power of letter writing and Women's March Action is stopping by October 19th to lead us in postcard writing to Texas. So lots of work still to do. I hope you will join us and 
thank you all for, for being here. And, uh, and again, thank you, Bill and Sarah, for, for, for all that you've been doing to support our democracy. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was really, enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And good luck. We'll stay in touch. Okay.